Turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, we'll read from verses 43 through 52. This is God's holy word, so let's give careful attention as it's read. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me? As you would against a robber. Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left him and fled. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. It's been several months since we've been in Mark, in our series through Mark here. And I want to remind you of, of where we left off, uh, where, where we are in the story here, uh, with a story from the early 20th century. So in, in 1910, the shipbuilding company called the White Star Line put out a brochure about two new ships that they had just built uh, and advertising them as, as having been designed to be unsinkable. And that was quite a boast for a, an ocean liner, um, especially... 112 years ago, and of course one of those ships was famously the Titanic, um, and the great boast of unsinkability, um, at least in hindsight, it seems almost to foreshadow uh, what, what famously happened uh, to that ship. And even on the night of April 12th, in 19, April 15th of 1912, uh, when the New York office of, of the White Star Line got word that the Titanic was in trouble... Uh, the vice president of the company responded, we place absolute confidence in the Titanic. We believe the boat is unsinkable. And communication was slow back then. He, little did he know it was already at the bottom of, of the ocean. Well, Jesus and the disciples have come to the very night of, of this great crisis that Jesus has been warning them about, that he would suffer in Jerusalem and even be killed uh, he's warned Peter, Peter, Satan is coming for you. Uh, you will deny me. He warned all the disciples in, in just the previous scene, uh, you're going to leave me, you're going to desert me. And as they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane in, in the, the passage immediately previous to this, he warned them to pray. You need to stay up and pray with me that you won't fall into temptation, you won't fall in this trial that's coming and that was where we found Jesus in prayer and in prayer and agony uh, over what he was about to face. But how do we find the disciples on this, this night where Jesus is arrested? Uh, we found them previously making great boasts, right? sort of like the white star line. And it, and it sort of foreshadows what's coming. Peter responded to Jesus' warnings to him. No, there's no way, Jesus, 
You know, even if these other knuckleheads, to paraphrase what Peter said, even if they fall away, even if they stumble, I would never. But then we find them all protesting that they would die before denying Jesus or before leaving him. And here we pick up the story as as the iceberg, if you will, uh, that will sink their resolve and their loyalty approaches. And so Judas finds them in the garden. Uh, Judas had left the Last Supper, you recall, and now he reappears. Uh, He's accompanied by a crowd. It it includes, as verse 43 says, or at least was sent from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Those are the three groups that make up the Sanhedrin. So uh, Mark is telling us this is the Sanhedrin or or some uh, portion of them that has come. Um, They're the ruling body of the Jews. They're they're made up of Jews. Um, They have all religious authority, basically, uh, in Israel. The, of course, the, the ultimate ruler is, is Rome, and um, Rome's under rulers like Pilate that we'll meet soon. Um, but Rome had enough sense to give people like the Jews um, governance of their own religious affairs, and then the Sanhedrin had some, some leeway in, in civil governance as well under Rome. So that's, that's who's named here. John's account, uh, John's gospel tells us they also came with a cohort. And a cohort is a, is a technical Roman military word uh, for a one-tenth of a legion. And, and technically, a full cohort is 600 soldiers. Um, there, there, many have wondered, are, were there really that many soldiers? Were there really 600 that came with uh, the, the priests and scribes and so on? Um, you, you don't really get the sense that it's that's this whole army necessarily. Um, maybe it was part of a cohort. Uh, they came from the cohort, something like that. But uh, they would have, and, and we read evidence of this from what the Jews say. Um, they would have been trying to walk a fine line between making too big of a commotion and stirring up a, a big um, uprising during the week of Passover. Uh, and on the other hand, being able to securely lead Jesus away under guard, as it says here uh, in verse 44. This is, who, this is who comes. How will Jesus respond as he's arrested? And, and how will he respond to the disciples abandoning him? And what does this teach us further about Jesus? I, we'll once again see a great contrast between Jesus and his disciples and how they act and how they respond um, Jesus firmly trusting in his fathers, the disciples again failing uh, to trust and stand with Jesus. But I, what I want you to see this morning is simply another portrait of Jesus uh, in the gospel here. One who, he, who, is, who is faithful as a savior, uh, that, that you would trust him uh, fully and give your entire life to him. So I want you to see him first as a, a betrayed and rejected savior. Uh, So here comes Judas uh, in the garden. Uh, His role would have been very valuable to the authorities. He knew where Jesus and the disciples hung out. He could approach Jesus without suspicion uh, and bring them to him. Uh, But Judas' treachery here is is famous, of course. It's uh, highlighted in how Mark tells the story. He notes immediately Judas, uh, one of the twelve, as if to say, you remember, this this is the Judas who is welcomed into Jesus' inner circle for these years uh, with the Lord of glory, with with the Son of God himself. He's witnessed his grace and his teaching. He's witnessed firsthand all of Jesus' miracles. He was entrusted with the money 
from the group. He, he was the treasurer, as we read in the Gospels. And so he uses here Jesus' loving welcome of him, his, his intimate access to Jesus, uh, to betray Jesus to death for, for some quick cash. And his treachery is highlighted even further by the, the signal that he agreed on in verse 44 with, with the, the soldiers that came. Uh, a kiss of all things. And the, the kiss wasn't an automatic greeting between people in, in that day, but it was a common way to show affection, to show honor. And this is how he's going to betray Jesus, along with his, uh, his, his rabbi, his eager greeting of respect and affection for Jesus. Uh, back in Mark chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus had said to the Pharisees, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And it seems Judas becomes sort of the ultimate example of that, of honoring Jesus with his lips. Um, this was true of the Pharisees generally, of honoring God with, with their lips, with their profession, um, while not serving him in their lives. And here at this moment, Judas professes loyalty to Jesus himself and honors him not only what he says, Rabbi, but in, in giving him a kiss with his literal lips. Uh, this is obvious of Judas, that Judas is, is an example of this honoring Jesus with his lips and, and his heart is far from him. It's obvious, sadly, still today, it's obvious in some churches, even in whole denominations that have liturgies full of scriptures and uh, praise to Jesus and so on while rejecting the gospel, rejecting the lordship of Jesus. They exist as places for people to live uh, progressive, transgressive lifestyles together with some lip service to Jesus. But how many are also sitting in, in faithful churches Perhaps in ours, their, their lives put together, they're living in outward conformity in some way to, to Christ, honoring Jesus with their lips, singing along in praise, offering some prayers, but their heart is far from him. How about you? It, it brings to mind what uh, R.C. Sproul used to call the, the scariest sermon in the Bible, which is really the, the, the little parable Jesus told about the final judgment, where he said that many will say to, to the Lord on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name? Did we not do that in your name? We've, we've, been, we've been serving you. We know you, don't we? And Jesus responds, depart from me. I, I never knew you. In other words, your heart was far from me. It was all a show. So where, where is your heart this morning as you worship? Do we dare to pray in Jesus' name over and over without sincerely or consciously talking with our Savior? Do, do we dare to open his songbook and, and honor him with our lips while our minds are somewhere else and, and not lifting up our hearts to Jesus? Where is your heart as you work or as you raise your kids? Where is your heart as you plan your future? Are you serving and trusting Jesus in all of it? Uh, secondly, see him as an, an undervalued Savior. Uh, verse 46, then we read, They laid hands on him and seized him. 
But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Uh, it's quite an account. The, the other Gospels tell us a few more details, uh, like, for example, that this was Peter. Mark doesn't name him. Um, and even the, the name of the servant, Malchus, uh, is given in the other Gospels. Um, and also the account that Jesus picked up the ear and healed the servant, put it back on. Then we come to Jesus' rebuke in verse 48. Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? And, and that word can, um, can mean a thief, can mean a, an insurrectionist, a, a bigger deal than someone stealing a, a candy bar or something like that. Verse 49, every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. They came out with overwhelming force against Jesus and his little band of poor disciples um, as if they were coming against a, an insurrectionist leading a rebellion. And Jesus says, you, you've seen daily his poverty, his humility, his compassion. Uh, there, there is the incident of clearing the temple that we have to work into how they might be thinking and, and seeing Jesus. But they're, they're treating him like a dangerous criminal. And it seems like Jesus' words are maybe something of a subtle rebuke to Peter, too. In, in pulling out his sword, he's saying, whoa, no one needs a sword here. Uh, Matthew uh, gives us explicitly what Jesus also directed to Peter. He said, he told Peter to put your sword back in its sheath. And he says, Peter, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will not at once put at my disposal 12 legions of angels? Twelve legions. I'm not great at math, but a legion is uh, 6,000. So I think that's 72,000 angels. Jesus is saying, Peter, if I had the slightest inclination to avoid what I've been telling you is coming, I, I could have 72,000 warriors of heaven at my side here in an instant. Now think about Peter. We need to not be too black and white, too, too simplistic with biblical characters in considering what they're doing or what they're saying. What, what can we say about Peter and his motives? Well, on the one hand, it's clear in the Gospels, Peter loved Jesus. Right? He knew Jesus was innocent of the charges and the aggression of the Jewish leaders here. And he's, he's defending his beloved leader. He's, he pulls out his sword to defend the innocent. But on the other hand, almost certainly Peter is also defending his vision, his version of the kingdom of God. What he's still hoping for, an earthly kingdom. To come and, and kick Rome's behind and, and bring immediate glory and power and, and so on. He's, he's still clearly not accepting that Jesus is going to suffer and die. He's not following Jesus' lead here. He's not trusting Jesus. Jesus is not resisting. He didn't evidently carry a sword. He didn't employ bodyguards. Um, he repeatedly is explaining that he has to suffer and die. That's why he is going to Jerusalem. And so here's another failure to, to fully trust and follow Jesus. Despite some good motives and good intentions wrapped up in, in Peter, he's as complex as, as we are. But a lesson for us here is that we never have to go against the teaching or the example or the plan of Jesus to, to try to make things right. 
or to bring about good. If, if Jesus is your king, you will never have to resort to uh, telling some white lies to, to smooth things over. All right? or, or situational ethics. You'll never have to resort to violence to advance the cause of the gospel. You'll never have to resort to remaining quiet or hiding your profession of faith in Christ when it's challenged. You are already victorious in Christ. He, he will carry out his plan to perfection with the full weight of, of Almighty God and 72,000 angels and so on uh, behind it, even if it contrasts with your timing or your comfort or your plans. I, I want to touch on a, a, a brief, briefly on a related question to this, this scene. It's a bit of an aside, but not, not entirely at all. And that is simply, was Jesus a pacifist? Is Jesus a pacifist? Many Christians in history have concluded uh, that Jesus' teaching and example here and elsewhere in the Gospels, um, his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, it's turn the other cheek, love your enemies, uh, that leaves only one conclusion, that violence is never an option for a Christian, even in terms of, of self-defense or, or war or protecting others. Uh, many have come to that conclusion. It's not the majority opinion in, in Christian history, but it's something to wrestle with. And, and I think if you think the answer is easy to that question, you really have not wrestled with it, with, with what Jesus teaches and, and does and how radical it is. Uh, there are different flavors of pacifism, um, some uh, approaching very much, I think, a biblical view. But, but let me explain just briefly why I think an absolute pacifism is not biblical. Uh, but, but with this qualification up front, I think there is a, in our setting, there's a traditional American attitude or emphasis on private property, on personal rights, and, and not, not entirely wrongly at all, guns, self-defense, wrapped up in a sort of macho, rugged individualism. Uh, that, that needs correction in the other direction <laughs> from what I'm saying. Um, needs to hear the teaching example of Jesus um, towards humility um, with, with conviction and humility. But, but just, just think about that question here briefly. Just in context, one of the things Jesus said in, in rebuking all the swords, Peter's sword coming out, the, the soldiers coming to get him, in verse 49 he says, uh, you know, you could have seized me every day in the temple, but this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. Uh, Jesus was, was not just a passive victim here. Uh, this is why he came uh, to suffer and to die. And he's been telling his disciples that. Uh, in, in John's gospel, John 18, he says that he lays down his life. No one takes it from him. Right? Um, so th- this is a particular scene that can't be applied to, to any other situation or co- just any other situation or question that we might come up with. Uh, Jesus had pr- previously resisted um, and avoided arrest and harm uh, because it wasn't time yet, uh, but, but now it's time. Another interesting note uh, about this question, you know, is Jesus and should we be pacifists, um, is that Peter has a sword. Peter has a sword, and, and Jesus, you know, evidently he's been carrying it for a while. Jesus hasn't told him to get rid of it. Um, and even here, again in Matthew's account, Jesus says, put it back in your sheath. He doesn't say, Peter, you had a sword? You know, throw that thing away. Put it back for later, right? That's why a sword goes back in its 
sheath. And in Luke 22, Jesus had told some of his disciples to, that they were going to need to procure swords in the future. Not to advance the gospel, but evidently for self-defense or, or to protect their families. Uh, Exodus chapter 22 is, is the classic uh, and clearest passage that lays out a, a right to self-defense uh, within limits. It's a fascinating little uh, case law there. I'm not going to read it now, but you can read that later. Exodus 22 um, for protecting life. Romans 13, Paul says that the government bears the sword from God. Um, that means the government has the right even to execute people who do evil. And that's been applied uh, historically and I think rightly to even to just war theory. So in terms of a whole nation uh, defending life against another nation. Um, and when we act in self-defense uh, to defend life, uh, in, in, at least in our nation... Uh, we are, by our laws, essentially acting in that time, in that place, in the place of our government. Uh, in the place of government, which gives the right to protect life and the life of others. Uh, just, just one other biblical piece to note. In, in uh, the book of Revelation, uh, Jesus is pictured there, uh, how? With, with a sword, right? Riding on a war horse, trampling his enemies. Uh, that's not how he came, decidedly not how he came. Um, uh, at the incarnation, his first coming. Um, but that, that's how he's pictured ultimately. Um, here in this scene, Jesus is advancing his kingdom through suffering and through sacrifice. And here's what maybe some, you know, Second Amendment rugged individualistic Americans need to take to heart more that he promises his followers will too, uh, will advance the kingdom through suffering. Uh, not through violence. Um, you never have the right to fight in terms of literal violence for the kingdom of God uh, to defend your profession of faith with your fists or with a gun. Um, in terms of your attitude towards those who hate or persecute or oppose you for your stance with Jesus, Jesus' instruction is you, you turn the other cheek. You, you stand willingly with Jesus. Um, even to your hurt, uh, in full trust that you already have the victory in Christ over them. Uh, even if you should die for him, as, as many have in history, uh, you will return with him one day when he comes on his war horse, right, to, to crush all of his enemies for all time. Well, that, that, that little overview doesn't by any means exhaust the topic or answer all the practical questions we might have about pacifism and violence and so on, but I, but I do encourage you to wrestle with that more as this is a place that comes up. Thirdly and finally, uh, I want you to see uh, an abandoned Savior. An abandoned Savior. I want to remind you, as I noted several months ago when we, were, we were, came into chapter 14, uh, of the alls in this passage. The way Mark keeps using the word all uh, for emphasis. So back in verse 23, the Lord's Supper, all drank with Jesus. All of them received his incredible promise at the Last Supper. And all drank. And then verse 31, we find all of them protesting that they would never deny him. They would never fall away. That they would follow him even to death. And now in verse 50, the final all. They all left him and fled. They all abandoned him. Uh, just as Jesus had said they would. They, they all made these great boasts and, and professions of loyalty to Jesus. And it, and it falls apart in an instant. 
And again, we don't want to be overly simplistic about this, the disciples. Uh, they, they had left their homes, left their families, left their income to follow Jesus these, these few years. John and Peter, as we keep going in the story in coming weeks, John and Peter, you know, they seem to have fled with everyone else, but then they quickly come behind to find out what's going on. And then we find John at the cross with Jesus. But they're not yet at the point where they completely trust Jesus or, or with him no matter what. They're probably all still looking for an earthly kingdom, earthly power and prestige. And there, there's been plenty of evidence of that back in chapter 10. James and John came to Jesus. And what was their request? You know, let us be the greatest ones in, in your kingdom. Which surely they expected soon. We'll, we'll find them after the after the crucifixion, uh, locked in a room in despair. Everything they hoped for had failed, not been accomplished. And this is where their hopes lie, at least in part. And so, in an instant, their defective discipleship, their lack of faith and, and loyalty is exposed, and they, they all flee. Uh, Jesus' call was to take up your cross, lose your life for him. He was to be their life, uh, not, not an add-on, not a means to some end that that coincided with their life goals. And, and they're shown to still be somewhat self-preserving. And not yet self-sacrificing for Jesus. Fully. There, there's a curious add-on to the story as Mark tells it. Uh, in verse 51 and 52 here. Mark's the only one who relates this, this strange little account. Um, a young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet. Over his naked body, they seize him, the sheet comes off, he runs off in the night naked. Um, the man's not named. Uh, the, the traditional identification of this man, um, that, that's still, I guess, the best guess, is that this is Mark himself. Uh, there's really no, no solid uh, reason to, to think that other than to just really wonder, you know, why would Mark include this? None of the other gospel writers include it. It's not really a key to the story. Um, it's maybe just sort of an, an anonymous cameo um, of Mark himself. It also goes along with the guess that perhaps the, the upper room that they were just in for the Last Supper could have been Mark's house. In, in Acts, we find them, the disciples, in an upper room that is Mark's house. And so maybe this is the room they like to use. And Mark, this young man who wasn't one of the disciples, he, you know, he rushed out late in the night to see what, what this commotion was. And... Uh, he ended up fleeing as well. So anyways, interesting, interesting guess that maybe this is Mark, but it's simply another example of, fact, of the fact that everyone was there with, with some interest and support of Jesus fled uh, and abandoned him. And, and thus Jesus went to his trial and to his death alone, abandoned. You know, during, during COVID in the last couple of years, Everyone noted the horror of all of those who had to die alone. You know, whatever we thought of the, the policies that made that the case in, in various institutions and hospitals and so on, many people had to die alone in the sense that they were without their families and friends for weeks through their death. And yet, not, not to diminish that at all, the, the, the sadness of that, but those people still had the support of, of phone calls and cards from friends and family. They had the care 
of doctors and nurses and so on. It's not the kind of aloneness that, that we're talking about with, with Jesus. He's experiencing being unjustly condemned, and, and his closest friends are unwilling to support him. And, and I just remind you, Jesus is experiencing this in, in his humanity as a man. We can't think, well, oh, he's, he was God, this was easy for him. He experienced it as, as you and I would, abandonment and aloneness. Um, you know, at any moment, Jesus could have abandoned this plan and just gone home to his family and been restored to them and lived a peaceful and quiet life. And part of his suffering for you uh, is that he was abandoned and alone. He was abandoned so that you would never be abandoned. Right, that you would see his absolute faithfulness, his worthiness as a savior. Uh, we, we see here that Jesus died for self-preserving cowards, in a sense, like me, like you. But as with the disciples, so with you and me, he, he calls you back to himself again and again. Even as we, in essence, abandon Jesus from, from time to time in our choices He's already, as we saw in previous passage, he's already promised the disciples to meet them in Galilee. He said, you're going to fail, you're going to abandon me, to deny me, and after I rise, I'll meet you in Galilee. Right? He, he made that promise knowing that they would abandon him, knowing him, knowing that, as we'll, we'll read next week, Peter is going to curse him up and down to protect himself from being identified with Jesus. He made that promise knowing they don't believe and appreciate his mission through suffering for them yet. But he gives them that grace. And, and just note also, when we come to the book of Acts, um, everything has changed with the disciples. They're, they're disciples here who, who flee in an instant. And after the cross are, are terrified, huddled, hiding and then in the book of Acts, disciples and, and millions of martyrs after them stand up to beatings and imprisonment and even death. Um, what happened? What changed for them? It was a dramatic change. They, they were convinced largely by the resurrection of Jesus that it points to the centrality of the resurrection in Christianity. Convinced that Jesus was who he says he is, that he is the son of God. That he is their savior, he, he died and rose for them. And, and Jesus was to them then worthy of giving their whole lives, even to death. He's a worthy savior and Lord. And so I, I present him to you this morning as your worthy savior and Lord. Give him your trust, your whole life. Uh, Paul will write later in Philippians 3, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as, as trash, in order that I may gain Christ. So you and I can take up our cross and uh, entrust ourselves to him fully uh, with the conviction there's, there's nothing better for us than Jesus, than, than devotion to him. Uh, his promise to his disciples would be, I, leave, I, never, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word again this morning from uh, your servant Mark. 
And the way it presents Jesus in his <clears throat> willing suffering for us, uh, his, his full uh, and complete trust in you, our Father, his Father, uh, we pray that you would uh, give us the faith of Jesus. Um, help us to trust him as a worthy Savior uh, fully, uh, to give ourselves fully uh, and completely to him. Uh, give us reflection on these things throughout this day and this week. Uh, help us to live them out, to uh, be a witness to this Savior. Uh, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.